0: Welcome to Historic Knoxville News, a podcast series based on readings from old Knoxville newspapers and other documents. I'm Melissa Brenneman, Robbie Griffith is the reader, and Knox County historian Steve Cottam is our interpretive guide. In 1932, a group of nine men, including Harvey Broom and Carlos Campbell, hiked the full length of what was to be the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. The hike was covered in the news media of the time, but for this episode we'll take a break from the newspapers in order to bring you a first-person account. This reading is an abridgment of a chapter taken from a memoir by Carlos Campbell and used with the kind permission of the Campbell family.
1: The Wilderness Hike, taken from Memories of Old Smokey by Carlos Campbell in august of 1932 a party of nine members of the smoky mountains hiking club made what is still believed to be the first continuous hike from one end of the great smokies to the other up to 1932 very few hikers seriously considered traversing the entire main crest of the great smoky mountains national park in a single trip we knew that grim failure had overtaken the only two parties within our knowledge to attempt the conquest We had seen exhaustion written deeply in the faces of those who had tried it. We had looked with some strange emotion upon their clothing, torn to shreds by the unyielding undergrowth of rhododendron and mountain laurel. We listened to their tales of chilling midsummer rain and about sleet that lay two inches deep on the ground. But for some reason we were not dismayed. The challenge of those failures could not be ignored, but it made us more determined than ever to conquer the crest of the Smokies. We gave ourselves eight days in which to cover the 31 miles to Newfound Gap, 5,045 feet above sea level, and our announced destination. Among ourselves, however, we cherished the secret hope that we would get through to Deal's Gap, 72 miles from our starting point, an average of 9 miles per day. That is a moderate distance for experienced hikers, but as any mountain hiker knows, a mere statement of mileage means little when such a dim-trailed way is concerned. The character of the terrain is vastly more significant in many cases, so is the presence of water or the lack of it. Weather plays a hand, and so does luck. Needless to say, our plans were carefully made. Particularly did we give serious attention to our packs, for the weight of these could spell the difference between success and failure. After much effort, we managed to hold them to about 60 pounds each. Food and general equipment were apportioned equally as to weight and bulk, and so arranged that no one man would carry all of the bacon, another all of the dehydrated foods, and so on around. As a substitute for water, we included a quantity of canned goods, because those who have fought their way along the crest of the Smokies, know the difficulty of descending its slopes to find a supply of water. So when we set out one Sunday morning in August, it was with the feeling that we were organized to succeed. Our fate then rested in the hands of the elements and upon our own pack burdened shoulders. Our send off was a memorable one. Other members of the club accompanied us as far as the first peak on our route as a tribute to our ambitions. Unfortunately, this honor nearly ruined us. Our escorts, without packs, set a fast pace that we attempted to follow, and as a result, after an hour of hiking, we began to lag behind. Finally, we found ourselves disposing of certain personal belongings to lighten our load. At one time, I was so completely whipped that I would have turned back, except for the fact that those ahead of me were depending upon food that was in my pack. There were others, too, who felt much the same. We made it, though, after a long session with a scorching afternoon sun, but we didn't feel much like conquerors. Yet, as we watched the evening shadows lengthen from our 5,025-foot perch, and as we looked at that 360-degree panorama, we felt well repaid for the day's ordeal. Give up the trip? Never. We were conquerors again. From White Rock, our route was to follow the Appalachian Trail, a continuous footway along the crest of the mountains from Maine to Georgia. The 72 miles of jagged state-line crest through the Great Smokies is the roughest and highest portion of this 2,000-mile trail, and was one of the few sections where much of the way was still in a wilderness condition. We spent that first night a mile short of the day's goal. However, we had breakfast at Low Gap Monday morning, filled our canteens and the canvas water bag, and started westward on a fairly good trail. But the trail did not serve us very far, and we soon were fighting our way laboriously through a maze of rhododendron and laurel, with a few sawbriars interspersed for good measure. Our packs were continually hanging on the underbrush, as was our clothing. We pushed on until darkness was only an hour away, hoping against hope for a suitable campsite. Apparently none existed, so we staked our tents in the wilderness, away from any water, away from comfort, and away from anything but rhododendron. To conserve our scant supply of water, we warmed canned foods before a fire so we would not have to use extra water for cooking. Then we turned in, but not before we had discussed plans for the next day. They were vague, for the country ahead was completely unknown to any of us. But one thing was certain, we had to find water. This was causing us great concern. Next morning we made an early start. Soon we were out into an open area caused by the lumberman's axe and the fire that had followed. Blackberries and huckleberries were plentiful, and so were the bear signs. The sun shone down upon us with a vengeance. We tried to use the virgin forests on the Tennessee side, but soon found the slope too steep for good hiking and the undergrowth too thick. We returned to the blistering sun of the open spaces where we plodded wearily along. Every canteen was empty, as was the canvas bag, and the situation became desperate. I'm going down for water, was the sudden announcement of Herrick Brown, the youngest member of the group. We let him go after giving him all the canteens and the water bag. We even made up a pot of all our loose change and later calculated that he could have bought a similar quantity of a famous Cosby product with the money we gave him. There was nothing for the rest of us to do but wait and hope. Cans of kraut and grapefruit were opened. The slight relief this gave us more than justified the added weight of the canned goods. We continually called to the water searcher, but no sound came back. Finally, our throats became so dry we could no longer call. Then we heard it, an indistinct call from below. We answered as loudly as dry throats would permit. Then, sooner than we expected, he came into view with a big smile on his face and a moisture-covered water bag slung over his shoulder. With our thirst once again quenched, we proceeded along Hell Ridge. In fact, that is when the ridge got its name. Even the cut-over sections that the forest fire had missed were barren. At an elevation of 5,900 feet, we found and killed a big rattlesnake. We were told later by park naturalist Arthur Stupka that this was a new high elevation for a rattler in the Smokies. As we entered the beautiful forest at the shoulder of Old Black, we felt a new appreciation for the heroic work done by leaders of the park movement, It could not immediately restore beauty to Hell Ridge, but it could and did prevent other parts of the Smokies from meeting similar fate. We reached the 6,430-foot summit of Mount Chapman in time for lunch and were rewarded by some of the finest views to be had on the entire state-line crest. Suddenly it began to rain and we stretched our ponchos to keep us dry and warm during the remainder of our lunch. How welcome that rain would have been 24 hours earlier. Immediately following a rain is the very best time to see the Great Smokies. The characteristic haze is washed away, leaving the landscapes much clearer. On Eagle Rocks, we were treated to spectacular sights, such as only devotees of wilderness trails are privileged to see. Neighboring peaks peeping above solid banks of white clouds stood out in bold relief a riot of color beggaring any effort to describe adorned the western sky we had planned to go on to the junction of the state line and hughes ridge but the surroundings at eagle rocks were so very pleasing that we could not leave after finding water within 200 yards from the crest we decided to camp there when we finally did get underway on thursday morning we did not fill our canteens because it was well known to hikers that one of the most dependable springs in the High Smokies, at the junction of Hughes Ridge and the State Line, was just a mile or so ahead of us. We still had enough to carry without packing water unnecessarily, but when we reached that spot just before noon, we found that the dependable spring was dry. We had to go a mile farther down into North Carolina before we found water. After that experience, we took nothing for granted and always carried a good supply of water. Leaving Hughes Ridge and following the Appalachian Trail markers at a most confusing turn, we entered upon the most jagged, irregular crest of the main ridge of the Great Smokies. Quite appropriately, a 10-mile section of it is called the Sawtooth Range. We descended along the knife-like crest for a few hundred feet of elevation, only to climb back just as high or higher to get over the next tooth in that long saw. At one place, our descent was so steep that we pitched our packs down ahead of us to prevent them from bumping on the cliff back of us and throwing us off balance. Throughout the next five miles, we learned how elusive a mountain peak can be. We were headed toward Laurel Top, highest of the numerous teeth in the range. After crossing six or eight knobs, we began to feel that the next one, which we could see occasionally through the foliage, would be Laurel Top, only to find another high one between Laurel Top and us. When we finally did reach Laurel Top, the panorama that spread out before us was a suitable reward for the tedious approach. We counted 15 separate ranges in that sea of mountains. Much of the Cherokee Indian Reservation, which borders the park on the south, was also seen. As we neared the end of the much-notched Sawtooth Range, we came into another, but much smaller, fire-devastated area. This fire had followed closely upon the heels of the timber cutters. There are a few such sections in the Great Smokies, and only two along the state line. The highest point in this fire scald bears the quaint appellation, Charlie's Bunyan. The thrilling views it offers help make one almost forget the ugliness that was left by the fire. We picked Charlie's Bunyan for our lunch site. With clouds hanging overhead to protect us from what otherwise would have been a scorching sun, the prospects for a pleasant rest were good. At least that's what we thought. But before we had finished digging into our packs for the food, there were significant rumblings coming from the Tennessee side. Quickly the storm broke upon us in all its fury. This was no ordinary rain. It was swept horizontally and sometimes upward by a stiff gale. Our only recourse was to get moving. There was no keeping dry. With the upward sweep of the rain, our ponchos became just so much excess baggage. Lightning flashed alarmingly close as we stumbled through the maze of fallen tree trunks that had been left by the fire. Despite the fact that we were chilled to numbness by the rain, this was a thrilling experience, A storm subsided as we reached the next virgin forest. We turned our faces toward Newfound Gap, only three and a half miles away, which was our announced destination. We made it on to what we called Little Indian Gap, where we camped Friday night. On Saturday morning, we made the steep ascent to Clingmans Dome, the highest point of the entire Appalachian Trail, as well as the highest in the Smokies. The elevation there is 6,643 feet. About two miles west of the dome, we noted the last of the red spruce trees. Here in the heart of the Southland is the southernmost habitat of this tree that is also native to New England and Canada. On Siler's Bald, whose high grass-covered summit usually rewards the hiker with superb views, we had only a fleeting glimpse through the shifting, low-hanging clouds. So we continued on to Buckeye Gap, where we spent the seventh night after having made 12 miles of hiking for the day. Even after we had decided to extend our hike to cover the entire length of the park, we still hoped to complete it within the originally planned eight days. But by now it was beginning to be obvious that an extra day would be needed. This presented a serious problem for us. This time it was a food shortage, but it was about to become as serious as the water shortage of our third day. We had already been rationing our diminishing supply, By Sunday, we were even dividing such small items as crackers, but we continued hiking in the hope that we might be able to get a little food at the lone herder's cabin that remained at the edge of Russell Field and only a short distance from our trail. As we approached Fawn's Cable, the herder, we asked if he had any eggs or chickens that he would sell us. "'I ain't got nothing but sow belly, taters and meal,' he answered." We were indeed glad to get about a gallon of potatoes, a gallon of coarse meal, and about a pound of fat bacon. So fat that there was not a single streak of lean in it. Believe it or not, that extremely simple food tasted like a banquet to us after having been on half rations for more than a day. We were becoming a part of this land of do without. The early settlers of these remote mountain coves had to grow or make almost everything they used or do without them. There were no convenient places where they could be bought, even if they had the money with which to buy them. The situation often became critical because of the scarcity or complete lack of many things that, in more easily accessible areas, were classed as necessities. As a result, the region became known as the land of do without. Within a half mile of Deal's Gap, the goal of our nine days of tramping. We missed our route due at least partly to low-hanging clouds, and partly to an overgrown trail. It did not concern us very much, however, for our spirits were rising. We were at long last on the threshold of victory, In so far as we knew or could learn later, we would be the first ever to hike in one continuous trip the whole length of the Great Smokies. Threats of annihilation had been made against any member of the party who might seek to forge ahead to win the honor of being first to reach Deals Gap. To prevent any such impending violence, we lined up all abreast and marched triumphantly down into the highway.
0: Well, this is a departure from our usual reading of newspaper articles. How did you decide on this article?
2: I became aware of Carlos Campbell's book, Memories of Old Smokey, when I was doing research for my book, The Great Smoky Mountains National Park. My book is really focused on historic photographs of the Smokies, and I had found some really great hiking photographs in the Harvey Broom papers, which are in the McClung Historical Collection. But the accounts that Harvey had, had little newspaper articles tucked in with them, but the accounts weren't all that interesting. And I happened across a, a written description of the the great hike across the crest of the Great Smoky Mountains National Park in 1932, which is really a centerpiece in Carlos's book. He wrote this manuscript history back in his earlier years, but it was only published a few years ago, and I was very pleased that the family was happy that it would be a, a feature in our podcast, so I want to thank them for supporting that.
0: Yes, that's great.
2: But uh, it was such a good account because you get so much detail the Smoky Mountain Hiking Club people who were who were very instrumental in supporting the creation of the park were using every instance they could to put the park in front of the public. And so they were taking photographs of hikes, they were publishing little articles about hikes in the Great Smoky Mountains so that they could keep that idea out there and so more people could see what the Smokies looked like. Because even in the early 1930s most people had never really been into the Great Smoky Mountains and only a small number of people outside of those people who lived in the park had ever, ever seen what was going to be the park. Mm-hmm. It was really hard to get up there. And there really was no road to the park mm-hmm. in the early 20th century. There were roads that got you as far as Sevierville and then a not so good road to Pigeon Forge and from there you were on your own. <laughs> you were <laughs> traveling on old, old dirt roads I uh, found an account, a memoir of a hunting trip from 1898, and the man who wrote it described how he got from Knoxville to the peaks of the Smokies to go on a hunting trip, and it took him a day and a half to get up there of pretty much continuous travel, 18 hours of, of actual travel time, and he was traveling on wagons that were bouncing around on, sometimes the road would go into the river bed because there was really no place for a, a road to go and so they would go down the river, the Pigeon River for a little while and then they'd go back up on the bank and it was, mm-hmm. a, it was a really difficult trip.
0: Yeah, I know that's hard even on foot, much less with the wheels.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, of course the easy place to see the Great Smokies and the way that most people did who had been to the park were those people who were fortunate enough to be able to go to uh, the Appalachian Club or the Wonderland Hotel down in the Little River Lumber Company logging area down at the southern end of the park through Townsend. Elkmont was uh, started out as a little logging town for Little River Lumber Company and uh, Townsend Wilson Townsend, who was the lumberman Little River Lumber Company, was a very shrewd businessman and he decided that he could make a little resort out of it for hunting and fishing. And there was a train which was built primarily to carry the logs from the logging once they were cutting the boards back out to civilization. So uh, he was able to use the train but uh, as more and more of the land around Elkmont was logged. There was no hunting and there was no fishing, but there were still mountains. So it became like a, a pleasant summer resort for more well-to-do folks to go spend anywhere from you know a week to three months in the hot summer weather up in the, in the Smokies. And it was um, an interesting little village. Mostly Knoxville people were there and they could travel by train. They had little uh, cabins. Some of them had servants. and. Some of them even ordered food from the, the luxury grocery store at the time, T.E. Burns and Company. They could call by telephone, have a, an order of food from Burns put on the train and then shipped up to them in the mountains. So it was a, it was a very pleasant way to spend the summer.
0: These hiking guys didn't have an idea about doing a way. <laughs> <laughs> no.
2: And then the Wonderland was another, cl- another little resort that was right next door that uh, increased the possibilities of getting up to the park. The train was called the, the K-S-N-E, the Knoxville, Sevierville, and Eastern, and the nickname for it was the Knoxville Slow and Easy because it was so slow, <laughs> but you could go by train from Knoxville to Sevierville and then try to find your way up to the Smokies. Um, the first real road to Gatlinburg from Pigeon Forge was built in the 20s. Mm-hmm. So prior to that, when, when those Pi-Fi ladies went up to, to try to start the crafts movement up there, they actually had to go on horseback. Mm-hmm. So it was, a, it was really remote. Most people had uh, really never been to the Great Smoky Mountains and had never seen the mountains except from a distance. On a clear day you can see the mountains from High Points in Knoxville, but most people had never been to the mountains. Jim Thompson and his brother Robin Thompson and uh, Bruce Leslie and a number of other people who were photographers but particularly Jim uh, were taking photographs on these trips and they were using big heavy professional camera equipment which was glass plates and 75 pound cameras and it took three or four people to carry if somebody was going to do photographs to carry all that camera equipment Mm -hmm. and uh, but it was really Jim thompson's photographs and the photographs of george massa uh in asheville that were used to promote the park so that people could see what was about to be destroyed by lumber the lumber process which was clear cutting the mountain basically and then leaving the the, the debris, the, the slash on the ground and then that would catch fire when it dried out and burn. so you would have just a devastated area right. and that was what was really happening to large pieces of the Smokies and the, the real struggle to create the park, there were really two parts to it. The, the bigger, harder part was to try to persuade the lumber companies who had huge tracts of land, there were nine principal lumber companies, to try to persuade them to sell. And probably, and ironically, the Great Depression which hit during the middle of this period helped to persuade them that it was okay to sell and get out of the logging in the park. Although the logging actually continued all the way up until a few months before the park was dedicated in 1940. That was part of the agreement that they had to give to with a to with a number of the companies was that the company could continue logging certain tracts of land. So Little River Lumber Company actually sent their last log out in July 1939, and President Roosevelt dedicated the park on Labor Day 1940. There really are two things I wish for people to know from the book I wrote, and one of them is that 67% of the park was logged before 1940. Mm-hmm. And so what the CCC came in to do was to repair that damage. That One of the big things that they had to accomplish was to reforest the park and repair the streams and put fish back in the rivers because the silt had pretty much killed the the trout and the fish, so it was a huge job. The other thing I would like people to realize is that the enormous number of people that were moved out of the park, upwards of 4,000 people, and that was the really painful part because most of those people were in tight-knit communities and didn't want to leave and were ultimately compelled to leave because the power of eminent domain, ultimately, some of the property owners got together, uh, some of the Cades Cove property owners and filed a case that went all the way to the Tennessee Supreme Court and lost. So then they had to move. Mm -hmm. And there were some really crazy ideas floated around about what to do to develop the park. One of the things that kind of surprised me was how little idea the promoters of the park had as to what a national park would be. They were more thinking in terms of an economic engine. Mm-hmm. They were more interested in tourists, and they weren't really thinking that once you create a real national park that it's going to be a wilderness type of area. They they were even talking at one point about making um, Kate's Cove into a giant lake. So, uh, you know, it's really crazy ideas
0: out there. Well, along those lines, we have a book in the collection entitled Driven Wild, How the Fight Against Automobiles Launched the Modern Wilderness Movement. Mm -hmm. And a good deal of this book is about the struggle to find a balance between the preservation Mm -hmm. movement and the tourism end Mm -hmm. of uh, this activity. And uh, one of the players in this book is the uh, fellow Benton Mackay, who who wrote that article proposing the Appalachian Trail.
2: Right. And he was a a friend and colleague of of Harvey Broom. Harvey, his real purpose in life, I think, became the wilderness movement. He was a founder of the Wilderness Society, which later became Sierra Club. He really fought to preserve the park uh, as as a wilderness area. And that uh, has always, there's always been that tension there. The real tension in creating the park was between the lumber inter- industry, which wanted the Great Smoky Mountains to be a national forest and not a park, and the people who really wanted a park for preservation. And of course today, uh, the Great Smokies is recognized as an international biosphere uh, by the United Nations. It's one of those rare places on the planet where there's such a diversity of different forms of plant and animal life that it needs to be protected. Mm-hmm. And it is under all kinds of um, threats from air pollution and acid rain, and and the, just the the building around the park, which is really nipping at the edges of the park right now.
0: Yeah, more every year it seems.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, at, at the time the park was being created in the 20s and 30s, it would it would have been gone and and not very long at all. A couple of more decades the way it was being logged. Then that was one thing the mountain people. Had reluctantly begun to realize, and, and one of the things that I think maybe persuaded some of them that moving out might be better than staying, because with the logging, all the animal life was pretty much going away, and the fish in the rivers, the creeks, right. and uh, as that had continued, it would have
0: mm-hmm. wouldn't
2: have been a very good place to be anymore, right. you
0: know, I think. And you can really tell the difference when you find an area of old growth Mm -hmm. and compare it to the rest, how different it really is. Yeah,
2: the the people that that took the park up as a cause, like Carlos Campbell and uh, the the members of this hiking group, really devoted a lot of their own time and energy to the park. Carlos um, Campbell became a photographer out of his friendship with... um, Jim Thompson, and he talks about that in the, in this memoir, and he also talked about it in a National Geographic article from 1936, I believe it was, which describes a trip to the, the, I think it's, the title is something like a trip to the top of the world, because this was the highest bunch of peaks in North America as a group, in eastern North America, and most people weren't familiar with it, so it was an opportunity for Geographic to promote uh, the idea of the park as a, a tourist destination, and the state of Tennessee was definitely all behind that, all about that, and so were the Knoxville people who had, had promoted the park because they saw it as an economic engine, but Carlos Campbell talks in, the, in his book about watching Jim Thompson take a photograph and how many times he set the camera before he was happy with the way the shot looked. He, he moved the camera, it was hard to move, it was you know, big and cumbersome, but he moved the camera. I think it was five times before he finally got the shot the way he wanted it. And that was the photograph that was actually printed in the National Geographic article, which was a photograph of a little cabin on the side of a mountain up above mm-hmm. Gatlinburg.
0: I was reading this article by Benton Mackay, mm-hmm. um, an Appalachian trail a project in regional planning and his idea for an Appalachian Trail was much broader than just preservation or tourism. It almost sounded uh, utopian. People would just come and donate their leisure time to not just scouting which was the word they were using for roughing it but also even farming and uh, some logging on a small scale, but yeah. he just wanted to see these little pockets of human activity along the Appalachian Trail that would be self-sustaining and cooperative.
2: Yeah, he had—he was a, an idealist and certainly a kind of utopian, but uh, he helped to create the trail, and, and these, these hikers in 1932 actually were hiking a part of the trail that had been taken across the top of the Smokies, and they did get press releases. Like I said, they were always looking for publicity. And they've got little newspaper articles, and the pictures that I used in my book are actually new, are actually photographs that went with newspaper articles. And I have the newspaper article with that picture that I used in the book, which has the, the men checking their little registration credentials to be sure they were hiking legally in the park, which I thought was kind of funny. The park hadn't even <laughs> really come into existence yet, but the National Park Service had taken it over, started administering it, and uh, looking at how to develop it, and, and there were already people guard, guarding the park from hikers, not from lumber companies. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Did they also actually help to build the Appalachian Trail through the Smokers? They actually
2: marked the the hiking club actually marked a lot of the trails uh, for the. They, they would decide you know what would be a good route for a hike, and then the CCC workers would actually come along and build a trail. But they would. They'd explored. They would find the, the route that they thought was good. They'd blaze the trail, and then the CCC workers would actually come back through and, and cut the, the trail and, and fix the, the path for people to walk on
0: and the trail had to be moved in so many places mm-hmm. later on when uh, skyline drive and mm-hmm. blue ridge parkway yeah. and others started getting built and they didn't want those to be inside i suppose yeah
2: they, yeah, they uh, park originally was proposed to be a lot bigger the original proposal the footprint they had wanted for the park would have come out across um wares valley and picked up some of that peripheral land around the park but uh, it was proposed that the park would be way out uh, around, taking in more valley land, which would have been harder because you would have had to evict more families and more farmers.
0: Well, Harvey Broom's legacy extends into the Cumberlands now because mm-hmm. the members of the Sierra Club have been very instrumental in building mm-hmm. the Cumberland Trail. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, and Harvey, I think, would be extremely pleased about that. Uh, there was an enormous amount of volunteer effort that went into creating the park besides the money which had to be raised. And all the initial money was private money uh, in North Carolina and Tennessee to buy the land. Uh, but there was also a lot of volunteer work. And eventually, Horace Kephart had a, a peak name for him and George Massa had an overlooked name for him. It's a wonderful film about George Massa that was done by Paul Bonesteele, which And Massa is the most elusive figure of all these people. I highly recommend.
0: All right, well, I will link to all these materials from the podcast homepage. Oh, good. And thank you very much, Steve. You're welcome. You've been listening to Historic Knoxville News, a podcast of the Knox County Public Library. The podcast archives are available from our website at knoxlib.org. That's knoxlib.org. On the podcast page, you can read article transcripts and find links to library resources related to the subject. You can leave your comments on each podcast episode and support the podcast by linking to it with the handy share button. The music was performed by Music Therapy and our reader was Robbie Griffith. I'm Melissa Bridiman. Join us again for another Journey into Knoxville's Past.